Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Ben, I hear that you had drinks with an Australian the other day? Yeah, I'm afraid so. I had a little too much to drink. Mm. I, I may have said some things that were a little bit indiscreet. You know, I, this is a hard-drinking culture, Australia. You, you can't go up against those guys and expect to come out clean. No, you, you know, you, 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 and then you tell them about your kind of interactions with the Russians, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you may have a problem. There may and be a whole FBI investigation. And I, I you know, I've, I've been keeping this close to my chest because I, I haven't wanted to tell anybody. But I, uh, you know, I just want you all to know that, you know, whatever you hear, I, it's That all you true. said in a drunken stupor <laughs> to an Australian. It's all, Including it's all that true. your favorite movie it, is it, Crocodile Dundee it, Part 2. It's all true. It's all true. <laughs> not Part 2, Shane. Not Part 2. And when the he FBI comes he and asks you about it. Lie. <laughs> I just like how what easy marks these people are. They sort of like they give themselves up. Reminds me of like one of these like training slides that you got you get early in in IC onboarding. That's like the headline of which is basically like she's not into you. She's a spy. You idiot. <laughs> it's like, like he doesn't really want to be your friend. He's just you know a Russian foreign. Agent. She just wants to practice her English. <laughs> oh it's all those beautiful Russian women who just want to practice their English. <sighs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Never Get Drunk with Australians edition. I'm Shane Harris, sober reporter, sober today anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, at 10 in the for morning. Now. Yeah. <laughs> for, for now. For now. We have moment. bourbon if you want. Oh, you do? Do what you well, like. Well, it some? is the third day or second day, third day of 2018 already. This year's flying by. I mean, I haven't had a morning cocktail <laughs> all year. <laughs> yeah. Last year took about three years to go by, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem like it's off to a good start so far. Did I, have maybe the lesson of 2017 is that we should spend 2018 drinking. Drinking. Yeah. Yeah, more alcohol. Yeah, I think, well, it's That's my helped. New Year's resolution. <laughs> <laughs> it helped last year. <laughs> New Year's resolution, continue with old resolution. I think our next crop of reviews is probably going to be the Drunken New National Security <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> These people are harmless because they're always an evil. Well, you know, when they, when they started the Bombshell Podcast, they adopted our habit of day drinking in it and i i thought how do you know they weren't day drinking before no no that, <laughs> i i think they they specifically borrowed that for us so this is you know to to aaron and lauren and and rada um got to do it in the morning guys uh, you know like stop recording in the afternoon this is a bad bad road hashtag we learned it by watching you <laughs> Uh, I am here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Happy, Happy New Year. Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. 2018. 2018. We're all still here. We survived. Yeah, we made so it. So far. And hopefully you all did, too. 
Uh, we have a couple of weeks of news to catch up on. But uh, this week on the podcast, a wave of anti-government protests grips Iran. Former Trump advisor George Papadopoulos, you remember him, may have been the impetus for the Russia investigation after drinking with an Australian. Never drink with the Australians. You know, it's just... Matched it, lit the fire. And Defense Secretary Jim Mattis addresses the U.S. role in the war in Yemen. Um, let's start with what's going on uh, in Iran. And tomorrow, I want to go to you first on this. Um, we are now in the, I think, the sixth day of seventh uh, day. day of protest in um, uh, multiple towns and cities across Iran, anti-government protests. Uh, and let me start by asking you. Tell people a little bit about why this situation, this wave of protest, is different from the last big wave uh, that we saw during the Obama years. Sure. So um, I think that's one question, what's different from 2009. Uh, and then there's the question that a lot of cable news has been asking over the last week, which is, has the Arab Spring come to Iran? I think both of these questions... Um, suggest a, a sort of, um, in you know, a, a failure to grapple with the facts of what's actually happening on the ground. So first of all, um, these are not um, highly organized or centralized, led by any particular political faction protests. They are dispersed. They're in smaller towns all over the country and also in the big cities, um, at least until the security services started to crack down. Uh, they are largely, um, according to reports from the ground, populated by the lower classes, the working class, not by um, the upper middle class young people who led the political protests in June 2009. Um, and the text for these protests is economic grievance. Um, just recently, Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran, published his budget for 2018. And it was a more transparent budget than these things have been in the past, revealing in part the amount of money that goes to uh, the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps and other security components of the regime. And um, also, uh, it it sort of revealed that there was going to be significant um, reduction in subsidies for fuel and, and other things that are important to, to people who are struggling in Iran. And so there was just a sense that this government, which promised a better economic life and banked uh, the Iran deal as a promise to the Iranian people that relief from sanctions would bring them a better life, is not fulfilling its promises. So there's a lot of uh, commentary saying, well, these are basically economic protests, not political protests, which, you know, on the one hand, you can say fine. On the other hand, anytime you see uh, people going out on the streets of a highly authoritarian country to protest their government, it's political. That's a political act. <laughs> that, yeah. is, that is not and just... And a dangerous uh, one. <laughs> and a dangerous one. And we've already seen a couple dozen deaths that we know of uh, at the hands of security forces and... Um, and likely a, a heavier crackdown to come. And, and was the, just uh, it's the, on the point about the budget, I mean, was this an intentional effort at greater transparency in the process? Because it sure seems like that's going to be a, a read as a backfire now. Right. So we, within this authoritarian regime, of course, there are different political <laughs> factions. Um, and Hassan Rouhani is uh, a faction that is more interested in domestic economic development and reform uh, as compared to 
factions that are more focused on regime security uh, and kind of Iranian influence in the region and a, more of an external focus. Um, and so is, is it possible that the transparency in this budget was his attempt to put pressure on some of his elite political opponents? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but I think that those kinds of machinations are very, very difficult for us to fully see from the outside. I mean, not to tie everything sort of back to Russia, but this does weirdly um, remind me of a conversation that I had with a with a friend who still lives there, uh, sort of right after Trump's election. They were speculating about um, whether or not uh, the warming of relations that, that might come might actually put somebody like Putin in a bad position because he wouldn't have the big, bad United States to blame for all of the economic issues, all of the social issues. Is that sort of a, a feature of the Iran deal as well, right, that, that by moving or, or by removing this sort of, uh, you know, fulcrum of the blame, removing sort of this external uh, causation, that that has increased pressure or, or, or sort yeah. of increased focus on the regime itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is such a tendency in the United States in our political dialogue to make this about us. You know, the Obama people, uh, you know, having been criticized in 2009 for not being louder and stronger in the face of those protests, uh, you know, are busy tweeting that the president should say less than he's saying. And uh, conservative uh, critics of the Obama administration who are, uh, you know, uh, angry that he didn't say more uh, are suggesting that Trump's more confrontational approach may have spurred this and may be encouraging it. And both both sides of the Iran deal are trying to uh, make this somehow about the Iran deal. And I just think the message to everybody is this isn't about yeah. us, you know. And one thing the protesters are not thinking about or engaging with or I don't know what this is ultimately about or whether it's fundamentally economic or fundamentally political, whether it's a deep challenge to the regime or a shallow challenge to the regime. It's not about U.S. domestic politics. And and I, I think the, um, the search for uh, a way to make this about the, the confrontations that we're having with each other um, and I've been really surprised at how much uh, Iran policy Twitter is obsessed with the who does it vindicate and criticize. Wait, wait. You're surprised that in a highly <laughs> politicized environment in the United States that uh, that American Twitterati are using this issue to play their own partisan political games? Why are you surprised by that? So I'm not surprised <laughs> that American Pauls are, but I'm very surprised by how much people who are fundamentally Iran-focused and really should know better than to think this is about us seem to think this is about us. So, I look, I think that's a fine point, and it's, it's certainly fair to say that um, these protests are not a referendum on American policy toward Iran. In 2009, it, or, in or in 2015, in 2000, right. now, just not about us. Okay, fine. Um, I, I do think, and I, and I think it's also worth pointing out that as in 2009, so also today, 
the American response to the protests is not going to make or break right. what, what happens inside Iran. Um, that said, you know, I think that the Iranian government is going to put these down if they become a threat, just as they put down the protests in 2009 quite brutally mm-hmm. when they became too threatening. Um, and that's regardless of what we say or do. That said, I, I don't think it's fair to say that this has nothing to do with the nuclear agreement because by um, removing the nuclear sanctions and creating a situation in which certainly other members of the P5 plus one, if not the United States, had companies starting to go into Iran and government officials starting to visit Iran and look for business deals. It did raise expectations. Um, And that's the way, you know, in the way that international diplomacy can raise domestic expectations, just as an Israeli-Palestinian negotiating summit raises the expectations of Israelis and Palestinians. And then if peace doesn't come, there's some kind of backlash. I think you may be seeing a similar dynamic here. But I agree that we shouldn't overplay the American role and that most of what the commentary that we see in the U.S., is really about our own arguments with ourselves and not about Iran. So even within that context, I mean, unless I've sort of missed big statements, I I have been a little bit struck by the silence of some of the most outspoken sort of Iran hawks like um, Mike Pompeo, Tom Cotton. You would think that like this would be their big moment to sort of, you know, be on the be on the Sunday shows and and pound their fists and sort of shape the narrative in whatever direction. Especially they, given that the president has been so outspoken. Right. They, they actually uh, seem to be sort of restrained, <laughs> uncharacteristically restrained. I mean, what do you make anything of that? Do you think they're just uh, they're just watching how this unfolds? I think there have been um, some members of Congress who have been outspoken. Um, I, but I, I do think it's interesting that we're not seeing a sort of cabinet-wide echoing of the president's statements. That may be because they are, you know, because they feel like the president himself has done enough in that regard. He's out front. He can speak for the rest of them. Um, it may be because they, they, they have a little bit of the caution that some of their critics um, are articulating that this may, in fact, uh, taint the protesters somehow. Um, Look, I think that in any authoritarian environment, uh, domestic dissenters are labeled as foreign agents anyway, regardless. And so I I don't think the taint argument holds up too, too much. Um, So and I'd be surprised, frankly, if that would make a Mike Pompeo hold back. Do you think they will get louder in the coming weeks? I think if the crackdown gets heavier, you will see more condemnation, not only from the United States, but I certainly hope from others around the world as well. I have to say I'm so dismayed by the the statements that I've seen coming out of the of Germany and the UK, where they're sort of saying, well, we call on all sides to exercise restraint when, you know, one side is out in the streets asking for uh, bread and justice, and the other side is a government with a huge amount of power shooting at them. So, well, but- all all sides should act with restraint. Peaceful protesters should uh, should remain peaceful, and government officials with guns should not shoot at them. That's that's good, Ben. And turn Twitter back on. Yeah, and would you turn Twitter back? I, and and can we just note? That while this government is blocking Twitter and Telegram and all this, Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, is on Twitter yeah. making as is, statements as to is the rest the of the world. Leader. Yeah. So. Well, and that's one of the more fascinating aspects of this to me is that you know, and I think in, I saw in New York Times 
a statistic that said in 2009, when the last big wave of protests occurred, about 1 million people, I think I have this right, in the country had smartphones, and now it's more than 40 million. I mean, just the ab- unbelievable kind of explosion of the smartphone as a necessary device that even people with limited means are acquiring, um, I mean, underscores the extent to which this has become a kind of a, a pivotal tool in facilitating these kinds of protests, well, which is no wonder the government has now shut the well, access right. to them and, down. And that is something that we saw in the Arab Spring as well. You know, you had you had smartphone penetration um, in the Arab world that was higher because there weren't sanctions uh, of the same kind. And, and so it works in two ways. One, it breaks the state's monopoly on information. People have the ability to get information from outside the country and independent of government. And then two is as an organizing tool. So apparently Iranians have been using Telegram. The government um, has tried to halt block access to Telegram. But because it censors the Internet so heavily already, most people, you know, know how to use VPNs and use VPNs to watch movies or whatever. And so they can use VPNs to access Telegram, too. All right. Um, George Papadopoulos. Once. Once derided as a mere coffee boy, apparently <laughs> likes stronger stuff than coffee. Apparently, and a lot of it. <laughs> At least when he's meeting in upscale London bars uh, in the midst of the presidential campaign with an Australian diplomat. Uh, this, of course, is the New York Times story that ran on December 30th uh, that said Papadopoulos uh, I just love the lead. I'll read the lead. During a night of heavy drinking at an upscale London bar in May 2016, George Papadopoulos, a young foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, made a startling revelation to Australia's top diplomat in Britain. Russia had political dirt on Hillary Clinton. We already knew from his guilty plea in the Mueller investigation uh, that he had been informed about the fact that Russia had dirt on Hillary Clinton um, from this uh, man described as the professor, who this man Joseph Mifsud International the Nutty Professor. The Nutty Professor. <laughs> so apparently the Nutty the professor. professor. Right. The Nutty Maltese <laughs> Professor. To, to give it a like a, a right. humble right. olive oil importer. Bogart kind of <laughs> tells the coffee boy who then gets plastered uh, with the Australian diplomat and says something like, You won't believe what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> the Australian <laughs> diplomat then turns around and, you know, calls, calls his Jim friends. Comey. Yeah, in yeah. the Five Eyes, you know, of which they're a part. And is like, you won't believe what I heard. Um, so the Times story, of course, is raising the question and seems to be pretty persuaded that this is right, that this was perhaps, you know, the match that lit the fuse that leads to the Russia investigation. Um, I don't know how the story could take more improbable turns, but yet it continues to. You know, it's improbable on the one hand. Uh, um, on the other hand, like, it is of a piece with what we've seen from all these guys that were part of the campaign is that they are thoughtless, they're careless, they're boastful, um, <laughs> and they're all self-aggrandizing. And so they say these things. And I think part of what makes it challenging is that and probably what what made it challenging for the Australian diplomat, and, and he didn't report it to the FBI right away. He waited a couple months until he had a sense that it actually was meaningful. You know, because they're so self-aggrandizing, you don't know whether to take this crap seriously or not. I mean, I do think one thing that the story sort of... <sighs> 
puts on the table or, or maybe eliminates is this idea that the campaign had no idea, right? That there was, find these low-level people that are maybe in contact with the Russians, but they aren't communicating this stuff back to the campaign. The notion that he is drunkenly telling an Australian diplomat for exactly, I think, for exactly the reasons that you suggest, right? Sort of self-aggrandizement, um, you know, trying to, to sort of puffery or whatever. The notion that he doesn't also do that in his communications with the campaign. And then the fact that there's not only ongoing communications between him and the campaign that don't look anything like the campaign trying to dissuade him from having these contacts. And we actually see things like the Trump Tower meeting. I do think that we're starting to move into a place in which sort of, you know, you want to be responsible and not sort of impute knowledge without, um, you know, having sort of evidence of that. But it's becoming really, really difficult to, to come up with a story by which when they take that that June Trump Tower meeting, everybody in that room isn't fully aware that there is there is at least a rumor that the Russians have obtained, you know, illegally hacked emails from Hillary Clinton, that they intend to use them to hard, to, uh, to damage her, that they're trying to help the Trump campaign. I just think it, you know, it, it's it's not a, a bombshell story, but it's sort of it's another piece of information that just makes anything but that account so implausible. Well, yeah. there is this other piece of evidence of this, which is that Trump himself in July in a speech called on the Russians to get her emails, <laughs> right? right. Um, oh, and, right, that. And so, you know, there, there's a, and, I, you know, uh, the people who defend Trump on this uh, insist that that was a kind of uh, innocent blowhard kind of gesture. But I, you know, the day it happened, I wrote on Lawfare, wait a minute, the president just called on a foreign intelligence service to hack his opponent. You know, it didn't, it actually didn't strike me as remotely innocent at the time. And I do think you now have this situation in which the low grade staffer coffee boy, who's actually running a foreign intelligence operation of some kind, um, uh, in fact, has pretty early contact. He does bring it back, describes it in a meeting with the candidate, right? Which is they're sitting there in the stipulation of fact that he, you know, has a meeting in which he says this to... to right, that I have these contacts, I can arrange this meeting. Right. He's showing off to foreign diplomats that the Russians have this material. And then... They invite themselves over to Trump Tower to meet with the president's son, his son-in-law, and the ch campaign chairman on the explicit uh, understanding that this that they have dirt on Hillary and that this is part of the Russian government's support for the Trump campaign. And then they release the material uh, right around the time that the president, uh, the, the the candidate, calls on them to. Do so. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that, you know, there's this mantra, no evidence of collusion, no evidence of collusion. And there's actually a boatload of evidence of yeah. collusion. What there isn't, but but it's amazing if you just keep saying no evidence of collusion over and over again. It's I, like, I wonder if like Lee Harvey Oswald had just repeated robotically no evidence of an assassination, <laughs> no evidence of an assassination, whether we'd all believe that John F. Kennedy was still alive. Well, so I, th I think that th there is something 
to this, the no evidence of collusion thing goes along with the artless blowhard thing. Because if you're just an artless blowhard, then you can't possibly collude. Collusion requires some consciousness of wrongdoing. And if you're just an artless blowhard, well, you might fall victim to those savvy, nasty Russians, but you're certainly not doing it on purpose. You can't be blamed for that. So I think that's the narrative of the defense, which, frankly, given that these people are now in charge of the country, I don't find particularly comforting. But I also think... It's it's very interesting. So there's this new Michael Wolf book about the Trump campaign that uh, the Guardian got an advanced copy of, and and Bannon is quoted in yeah, there. He sounds like us slamming <laughs> the the uh, campaign leadership, including Don Jr. and and Javanka, for this Trump Tower meeting, and. He's saying it's awful because they were such artless blowhards about it. And if they'd only been more conniving and done it in a Holiday Inn in Manchester, New Hampshire, and then leaked the stuff to Breitbart, then they would have deniability. I and actually, it would have all been fine. I actually particularly liked his formulation of that. He said leaked it to Breitbart. Or maybe some more reputable publication. <laughs> I thought that was like this great moment of of self awareness. More, more yeah. legitimate publication. Be honest. He yeah. said, "You never see it. You never know it because you don't need to." So actually, this this story actually sort of cha- I, I think changes the question of criminal culpability. So this is a few months ago, and this is sort of you know you know whenever you you put out sort of a, a silly idea and then become enamored with your own silly idea over time. This is very much what's happened to me. So over the summer, Helen Mario and I, in response to Oren Kerr's sort of silly hypothetical that he put out on Twitter of, okay, there's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We have hacked emails. Come up with a theory by which you know, the Trump campaign is criminally liable for conspiracy to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And so Helen and I sort of sat down as a fun academic exercise to say, okay, this is how it would, would this is how it would, would work. We don't. There's no indication that the campaign gets involved before the emails are hacked. Um, usually, you can't conspire to commit a crime after the fact, you, but you can conspire to commit a crime sort of if you get involved midstream. So there's a way that you can read a provision of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to say the hacking is a misdemeanor. That's one sort of provision. Um, hacking to uh, for the purpose of violating a state constitution or or a state law uh, is a felony. So that technically is a is a different. It's of a combination offense. And so, okay, maybe if someone in the campaign gets involved midway through, they don't know about the original hacking, but they do know about the intent to violate a state tort law, actually the basis of a a lawsuit in Massachusetts right now uh, against the Trump campaign, though not Trump personally, then as long as you sort of know enough about what's going on, Sure, you can kind of cobble together a plausible criminal liability theory here. Um, And this is, there was sort of something that had very little support. We wrote with like every possible caveat of like, well, there's not really much to support that they necessarily knew that the intention was to was to release it. There's not necessarily sort of evidence that they had the requisite knowledge. There are other sort of issues with the theory, but every piece of information that has come out since then has kind of made me more feel like, you know what? Actually, that is, you know, this is moving closer to the rubric not of just collusion we're talking about some sort of untoward conduct but no we are in the realm of sort of actual plausible criminal charges here. yeah so i would i would suggest that the element that you're leaving out there 
uh, which we've talked about on the podcast before, that I think is probably a more plausible criminal theory, is that the FBI does a round of interviews in January and February uh, of last year, now 2017. And we know that two of the people they interviewed in that period were not wholly forthcoming with the truth in a fashion that later got them in trouble. I believe liar, uh, liar, pants on fire is the technical legal term. Uh, yeah, or 1000, 18 U.S.C. 1001. That's what the is, says. Is, um, but my, my, my variant of your theory is that your theory provides an, a, a more than ample predicate for an investigation that then a whole bunch of people don't tell the truth about. And I would be surprised if the only people who did not tell the truth in January when the FBI came knocking on their door were Mike Flynn and George Papadopoulos. Which again raises the question which we've asked before is why weren't they telling the truth, right? I mean, if, if Susan's you know kind of rubric that she lays out is is what's happening here and that you actually – what we're seeing are the elements coming together of a criminal conspiracy – and the participants in it know they were engaged in such a conspiracy, that would plausibly explain why they lied to the FBI about what they were doing. Yeah, and I, and I do think there's a difference. I, I do think there will be potentially a political difference or sort of a difference in the public conception if it if the ultimate crimes are related to the core act versus those secondary crimes. I, I totally agree. They almost have to be, don't they? I mean, like, we get, we get caught up I mean, in, in our discourse about this and in the media, we get caught up on this on the whole smoking gun idea. Uh, and, you know, even though some people have said you're in a room full of smoke, why do you keep looking for the gun? Um, but, I mean, is it, so I think you're right that, I mean, it, it, this has more of a public effect if there is some kind of ultimate kind of linchpin piece to all of this. Right. Uh, and I think it would have to be something to the effect of George Papadopoulos told Don Jr. and Don Jr. told his dad or something like that. Yes, it would have to be something like that. And the question is, where would you find that? But then but then Emails. take that exact yeah. question. Look at what this report about George Papadopoulos says. Look at the communications. And really, you don't think that George that there's a right. plausible support, if not the more likely scenario, is that – Don Jr. appears to be aware, or people very close, senior members of the campaign. Is it plausible that they didn't tell the principal of the campaign? Right. right. If I, you're going to drunkenly boast to an Australian diplomat, you aren't you going to soberly to your boss? boast to your boss? <laughs> <Yeah>. Manage <laughs> up here, Papadopoulos. Come on. So there's, you know? an, there's there's another big factor here, which is that, and and actually, again, I want to uh, uh, agree and endorse Steve Bannon's comments um, <laughs> because actually I, I commend everybody to this Guardian story. Bannon is smart and interesting and gets a lot of things right in it. And one of the things that he uh, points out is that uh, uh, Don Jr. Uh, has a date with destruction when he gets grilled about this in front of uh, one or another a House or Senate committee <laughs> coming up soon. He said, he said they'll crack Don Jr. like an egg. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got to say, uh, that is, uh, I, I think it is very unlikely that he doesn't get called rather soon. And I think 
it is very hard to imagine how he can answer a bunch of these questions without taking the fifth. Well, the House already, I mean, reportedly interviewed him at least once. And he was, while, you know, responsible members wouldn't confirm or deny, he was photographed going in and out of Right. No, to to me, the more interesting question is public hearings. Mm -hmm. And I think he's, uh, I I can't imagine that uh, he, he will not be made to testify in public. And I don't see how, based on everything we know, how that isn't an exceedingly difficult hearing for him. So you guys, it seems out that the Trump's lawyers were right. Things were heading towards a big conclusion by the end of the year. <laughs> Happy New Year! Happy well, New the, year. The, the whole thing is going to wrap up. Bob uh, Mueller is about to send. He's got that like email drafted to Ty Cobb saying your guy's in the clear, and he's just just waiting a couple more minutes <laughs> couple before more minutes. he hits send. All right, uh, let's move on to our third topic. Uh, <clears throat> while we were on break, you may have missed it. Uh, Defense Secretary Mattis gave an end of the year press conference. Uh, covered I a lot love of- this annual press conference tradition. Once a year, once a year, we get <laughs> to hear from our cabinet time. secretaries. Uh, covered a lot of ground. And one po- thing that stuck out to us was he was asked about the U.S. role in the Saudi-led air war against the Houthis in Yemen, uh, where they're not using our equipment, but they are relying on our intelligence to try and help improve targeting. Um, which, and they are using the bombs that we sell them. They are using the stuff that we sell them. That's true. They <laughs> it's like no longer it. our equipment because we sold it to them. Because we sold it to them. <laughs> the possession is nine-tenths of the law. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> um, and, and was challenged uh, by a reporter as to whether or not um, the U.S. efforts to help Saudi pilots be more accurate was paying off considering the you know, significant number of civilian casualties in Yemen and was asked whether he was, quote-unquote, okay with the current level of civilian casualties and Mattis replied, I'm never okay with any civilian casualty. Don't screw with me on this. Um, so revealing, obviously, a level of sensitivity about this. But, you know, Susan, this is, I mean, this is undeniably a, a question that he was going to be asked and was going to have to respond to. So, Yeah, so I think one of sort of the, the like, overall interesting things, and uh, Tammy can talk about some of sort of the specific news items in it as well, is, is sort of you sense how um, how weary and short-tempered Mattis really is, right? He starts the press conference actually by kind of but not sort of apologizing for this unannounced trip to Guantanamo, right? Sort of trying to make nice with the press corps. And then, you know, has this really sort of sharp reaction to what is a reasonable question? And actually, he sort of, the the don't screw with me thing is what captured a lot of headlines, but it gets worse as the encounter goes on. And I think Barbara Starr is the person who comes in to start sort of pressing him on it. And, And really, she's offering a completely fair framing. She's saying, you're saying sort of intelligence and training is how we're going to prevent Uh, these civilian casualties. We've been doing that. This is the level of civilian casualties, 100 people in 10 days. Is it working? Are you comfortable with this? You know, what what do these results mean to you about this now, you know, relatively long effort? And he really does get sort of, uh, you know, flustered and and insistent on, well, you know, I don't know how many people would have died except for this policy and, and really sort of in, refuses to engage with it and, and in some ways goes into sort of b- bizarre defensiveness. He says, um, believe me, Eisenhower would have loved to have not killed tens of thousands of French citizens when he landed at Normandy. He was unable to do it. And it's sort of this, it's the, sort of the combination of 
Mattis's sort of instinct towards defensiveness that I think has been especially on display lately, um, uh, sort of in a weird way coupled by some of, frankly, the president's or the White House's instincts to sort of characterize what are reasonable press ca- press questions as like a fundamentally unfair trap or, or unfair in framing. I also feel like he's really between a rock and a hard place on the Saudi war in Yemen. And, you know, th- this this uh, very uncomfortable position is one that, frankly, the Trump administration inherited from the Obama administration, which kind of wordlessly acquiesced in this Saudi uh, intervention into the Yemeni civil war and um, began the trend of providing uh, the the munitions and so on on the argument that if we didn't, um, the Saudis would have more civilian casualties uh, without our help than they would with it. And so, you know, he he's kind of stuck with this, but there's no question that the Trump administration has doubled down on support for Saudi Arabia and support for this war in Yemen. And at the same time, Mattis is under a lot of pressure, and the whole administration is, from Capitol Hill, which is increasingly upset about the civilian toll of the war in Yemen and our our kind of culpability for um, participating in it indirectly. And of course, the administration doesn't want to get more involved in that war. Um, so there, they, there might be more things they could do if, for example, they were directly cooperating with the Saudis on targeting they could say to them, don't target this now. There are kids there, right? But they don't want to get more involved. They want to have a, to have some level of distance from it. And the result is that the Saudis are bombing the same places over and over again and destroying just a tremendous amount of civilian infrastructure. Yeah, I want to say a couple words in defense of Mattis uh, elaborating on that point. First of all, Obviously, he should not have said, don't screw with me on this to a reporter. The re- Seriously, report- dude. Reporters, That's the worst thing to Shane all the time. Reporter's job is to screw with officials and, uh, you know, that's – and Mattis should just be a grown-up about that. Uh, that said, he really is in an impossible situation here and – um, they inherited this policy, whether you think the policy is a good thing or a bad thing. They're not actually in control of the targeting. When the U.S. does operations, we do not generate civilian casualties like this. So this is not a reflection, I think, of U.S. targeting practices. It's a reflection of what happens when, you know, peop- when people who don't follow as scrupulously the rules as U.S. forces do with some input from U.S. forces and U.S. technology uh, have access uh, to our weapons. Um, and so they're, they are trying to minimize stuff um, without, without either, as far as I can tell, being uh, you know, effective militarily because the Saudis are not obviously succeeding against the Houthis. Um, but they're also having unacceptable rates of civilian casualties. And other than completely revisiting the policy, which, of course, may be the right answer, I'm not sure how you bring that level down. Um, and so I, I do think he's in an, in an impossible situation. Uh, I also think uh, uh, of all the cabinet officials in the Trump administration who who the who you can say, how have they netted out after a year uh 
Mattis is the one who it's most easy to say this person is playing a huge net positive role in our national life right now. And so I am uh, willing to be uh, forgiving of a dyspeptic moment with a reporter. The policy is a, is a harder one because, you know, people are dying. Um, but I, I, and I do think we probably shouldn't be supporting the Saudi war in Yemen at all. But that is a much broader critique of both the Trump administration and the Obama administration than it is a specific critique of Jim Mattis. But I think that that last point is an interesting one about sort of that the Jim Mattis is the person that continues to play this incredibly important role. I think that's true. I'm also struck by how sort of different the perception is now versus where we were a year ago, which was really sort of the Jim Mattis to save America. I mean, in this, you know, really in this press conference, he underscores the ways in which he has really sort of minimized his role and distanced himself from sort of the responsibility of a cabinet secretary, right? So he's asked about North Korea and his answer is, well, you know, I offer military options, what they might be, and that's for the diplomats to decide whether or not we go to war. He's asked about the transgender military ban. Well, the Justice Department is litigating that. That's for the Justice Department. He's asked about his relationship with the White House after a year. And he says, I mean, I go there. I'm over there a couple of times a week. It goes fine. I say, I give my recommendation. No one elected me, but I get a full hearing, whether it be with the national security staff, fellow cabinet members or the president, the vice president. So, yes, it's going fine. I mean, he, in other words, don't hold me accountable for any <laughs> outcomes. Right. This sort of like <laughs> I'm just a dude who shows up and offers a recommendation and right. like and, and shrug. And I just I don't know that that's not. I don't know that that's not accurate or not a sort of a, a fair way to play the the cards he has, but it does strike me as really, really different than the expectations that existed in January of last but year. But it's so- also it's also really different from the reality. And with with all due respect to what Matt has said, that's not in fact the role that he's playing. Um, he is. Uh, a major player in what actually happens. And one of the ways he's doing it is by putting his head down and doing the work of running the Defense Department. And there have been, in contrast to the Justice Department, in contrast to the State Department, in contrast to Mike Pompeo at CIA, Admiral Rogers at NSA, there have been no Trump scandals at the Defense Department in the first year. And that is an enormous accomplishment on Mattis's part. We all basically have confidence in the way the Defense Department is functioning. And we, the confidence that we have is uh, exactly uh, the, the, to the extent that we have big questions. They're questions like this, which are continuity questions between the last administration and this one. There's no like what Trump is doing to the Defense Department question, the way he's destroying, for example, the State Department. Okay, but he doesn't have an interest in destroying the Defense Department. And none of his political allies have an interest in destroying the Defense Department. So you wouldn't expect to see that anyway. I think, frankly, Ben, you're being a a little too kind. I would say that on balance, I am happier having Mattis in the government than not. But we've spoken a lot many times on the podcast about the dilemmas of service in the administration, particularly in someone in his position, particularly at a senior level. And to the extent that he is saying, oh, shucks, well, I just go in and give my two cents. 
you know, then then what he is signaling to the public by that is don't expect me to threaten to resign over something really significant. The president's decisions are up to him. And I find that a troubling signal. Okay, so there may be things going on behind the scenes where he's using leverage in certain ways, but his he is pushing back on the notion that he is playing the role that you say he's playing. So I think you got to acknowledge that. A. B, um, to the extent that the Defense Department is insulated to some degree from the the sort of grenade launching destruction of the federal bureaucracy that we see elsewhere, it's because it is the war fighting department and Donald Trump is interested in empowering it for his political purposes. And one of the things that Mattis also talked about in this press conference is something that I think we should find troubling and that may in fact be his his deepest legacy at the end of the day, um, which is the way in which he is um, seeding throughout general purpose forces capabilities that used to be identified only with special forces, drone warfare, for example. He talks about this in the context of Afghanistan and the war against ISIS. And the the way in which he has signaled his readiness to keep American forces in Syria on behalf of diplomatic leverage there um, when there's no legal authorization for them to be there beyond the fight against ISIS. These are things that should trouble us. And in a normal administration, we would be focused on these as troubling policy trajectories. And it's only because things are so bad. And we see Mattis as one of the few people who seems to be somewhat standing in the breach that we don't talk about this stuff. But I'm not quite ready to let it go. Okay. So Happy there. New Year, Jim Mattis. <laughs> Love Tammy. <clears throat> I'm watching you. <laughs> Tammy's gonna have her own end of the year press conference. I would. I would rather cover that. <laughs> Way more interesting. Um, all right, <clears throat> we have to let that go because it's time for object lessons. Um, I'll go first. Um, Ben's gonna roll his eyes at my object. I'm gonna love your object. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend that everyone go read. It's a long read, so make some time. Uh, but Jim Risen, formerly of the New York Times, uh, intelligence correspondent for them for many years, has a very long piece in the Intercept. Oh my God, my eyes are rolling. <laughs> Could you hear that eye roll, everyone? I mean, they they rolled once in one direction for Jim Risen, and they rolled once in the other direction for the Intercept. They're gonna get stuck like that, Matt. <laughs> Someone's gonna slap you on the back, and you're gonna be stuck like that forever. Um, so Jim has this piece which um, I, I, I encourage everyone to, if you listen to this podcast you will be interested in what he has to say it's it's his perspective and POV on many of the behind the scenes negotiations that the New York Times was in with the Bush administration over the you know pretty astonishing string of scoops that that Jim had when he was covering the CIA uh, the most well-known of which is probably actually an NSA story about the um, Stellar Wind, the so-called warrantless wiretapping program in 2005. Obviously, you know, Jim has a very strong point of view on this, but I think it's really well worth bringing in to flesh out the whole picture. And there's some, you know, there's some new revelations for journalists, especially who are interested in how editors interact with people in positions of authority and when they decide to back off on a story and when editors get into fights with their reporters uh, it's a good read, and I'm sure it will make some people pump their fists in support of Jim, and others bang their fists on the table, and cursing him. And some of them roll their eyes. Love it. 
<laughs> some of them roll their eyes. Yeah. Ben, what's your object? I have a twofold object lesson on uh, the day on December 31st, I went out to my cabin in the woods with the estimable Autumn Brewington, uh, who uh, had built a elaborate series of snow globes uh, representing the year 2017 for uh, Baby Cannon to destroy. And we blew them all up with the baby cannons. And it was really cold out, and we blew up all the baby cannon, uh, all the all the snow globes, and we set it to music. And uh, on our show page, you can find uh, the baby cannon uh, 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 end of 2017 Happy New Year video that I made with Autumn Brewington. Uh, and then I came to work Yesterday, January 2nd, and what was there in the mail but 200 Baby Cannon Challenge coins, which uh, I got to say came out pretty beautifully. They really turned out well. Uh, And so we are going to uh, raise some money for a charity to be named. uh, And so stay tuned on that. In the meantime, you can see the Baby Cannon Challenge coin in all its glory on our show page. They're beauties. Got one right here. And hefty, too. (laughs) Boom. 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 All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. First podcast of 2018. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find that show page that Ben was mentioning on the World Wide (laughs) Web someplace. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Find us on Facebook. And please remember when you download the podcast, to leave us a rating and a review. Five booms, preferably. <laughs> It'll help alert other people to the podcast as well. Uh, our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by George Papadopoulos and the Crocodile Collusionists. Very nice. All right, I get it. Took a minute. <laughs> Took a minute That's to leave like, back okay. in. Okay. Crocodile. Dean bringing okay. it back from the yes. beginning. Yes. Crocodile equals Australia <laughs> yeah. in everyone's mind. I mean, I feel like a there's, a, there's a that's not a opportunity as this well. This is a knife. <laughs> that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's not collusion. <laughs> this is collusion. <laughs> that's collusion. <laughs> Uh, our music was first performed by world's biggest Crocodile Dundee fan, Sophia Yan. Little known fact. <laughs> Extremely little known fact. It's true. I'm not even knowing. She'll only reveal it to you when she's had a night of heavy drinking in London. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, on behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Coffin Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.